Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. I'm sitting at my dining table tonight with the luscious, lovely, <laughs> luminous Jen Dana. It's only because you fed me. That's why I'm luminous. <laughs> you made the most amazing potato curry and now I'm high on lemongrass fumes. It's amazing. I have to say I'm incredibly impressed with that. It was a new recipe to me. So you were a guinea pig and I've never made a curry paste before. Oh, it was so good. I'm so happy that you're sending me away with a little, like a little drug bag of curry paste there. It's amazing. Not to mention lemongrass and yes. capelime from capelime. my veggie garden. Yes. The chickens don't like that. No, so. I love it. <laughs> Give it to me. And for anybody wondering, it's the recipe from the Spirit House cookbook. It's the tofu and potato curry. And we left out the tofu because none of us really like that. And especially me. And as the cook, I get veto. And there's just more room for potato, exactly. which is my spirit animal when you leave out the tofu. So it's all good to me. Exactly. <laughs> left out the tofu, doubled the potato. Absolutely. <laughs> and the three of us polished it off. Absolutely. <laughs> so now we've had this conversation about food. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what connection means to you. And you can't say potatoes. Okay, God. <laughs> I, I looked at all those questions earlier and I was like, oh, potatoes are going to feature quite heavily in this discussion tonight, Mel. What are we going to do? Um, I think connection to me means an, a willingness to be vulnerable. I think when you're seeking connection from another person or a group or an organisation or they're seeking it from you, what they're asking you to do is to be vulnerable. And I think that connection for me is all about figuring out how to be vulnerable in safe ways and in interesting ways so that you can get the best out of that situation. I like that. Do you have any examples? Yeah, I think when I'm interviewing people for my job, what I'm asking people to do is actually be really vulnerable in front of me on camera and I'm asking them to trust me and to participate in a process that they don't know anything about. They don't know what the end result is going to look like. Quite often they've never appeared on camera before. So me asking them to really open up and give honest answers is I'm asking them to be vulnerable because people can detect crap. Like they can just detect when you're being fake or when you're being not authentic. And I'm, I'm not sure that I love that word authentic, but in this case, it kind of applies. And if I go into that situation where I'm not willing to be a bit vulnerable myself and willing to draw that vulnerability out of that other person, then they're not going to be vulnerable in front of me. So connection is a shared agreement to be vulnerable, I think. I really like that. And I had a, um, a similar experience with a client a few weeks ago who I wanted her to record some video that she could share at her staff management forum or her staff team building day. But I wanted her to record something that she could send out to new staff before they started. And she was terrified. And all we were doing was shooting a really casual video on her smartphone. It was very low key, I thought. And she just worked herself up into such a massive state about it that she cried. And I understand that. And so I didn't think it was a big deal, but she did. And so I was just really gentle with her and shared her with her some stories of times when I'd been ridiculously far out of my comfort zone. And then the next day when we shot the video, it was still really hard for her, but she did an amazing job. And she's the most beautiful woman with buckets and buckets of empathy that oozes out of her. And it just all came across on the video and was just great. But she said to me afterwards, thank you for not laughing at me. And I thought, 
Do people do that? Do people do that? Yeah. <laughs> and I, the, the feedback that I often – there are two pieces of feedback that I get from my clients quite regularly. And the, the first one is, oh, you make it so easy. And I think, well, you've got to go out of your way to make it hard, first of all. And the second one is, you made it easy for me to relax. And I just think, well, if I'm not doing both of those things, then I'm actually not doing my job properly. Because if you don't feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable in front of me, and it's usually just me and maybe an assistant in the room. I don't have a production company of a 1,000 people. So I'm, I set up the conditions to make it easier to be vulnerable – if I'm not doing that, then I'm not actually doing my job properly. So we should probably say what yeah. Ben's job is <laughs> because I don't think we have. Besides eating potato curry. <laughs> and eating in my kitchen. Yes, regularly. Um, <laughs> so Jen's a photographer and a videographer. She spends a lot of her time shooting people with a camera, not with a gun. Yes, uh, <laughs> those days are over. My parole officer says I'm not allowed to do that anymore. Oh, so. <laughs> well, that's what I hope. <laughs> but what I'd like to know, you started your career as a forensic scientist mm. How did you get from being a forensic scientist to being a kick-ass photographer and videographer? Uh, Thank you for the lovely compliment. I applied to forensic science at uni because I didn't think I'd get in and so I applied so that I could say I applied to go to uni and then didn't get in and I could use that as an excuse for the rest of my life why I didn't have to go to uni. (laughs) Hashtag victim mentality. And so I got in and then had to work my backside off because I didn't know anything or anyone. So I worked really hard and got a job as a fire investigator and, and a researcher for the Rural Fire Service in New South Wales. And I did that for quite a long time and then just decided that I looked around and saw the future of what that job was going to be and I think it's a really hard job and I think it takes a lot from you personally. If you're a field worker in forensic science, you really do have to have a thick skin and I just found it really difficult to compartmentalise those things. So you do quite a lot of photography in forensic science. So I just kind of thought, well, I love the photography aspect of it, so I'll just kind of ditch the investigation stuff and stick with the photography and so I just kind of pulled the part out of it that I loved and just focused on that. So we met... It must be about 10 years ago. 2009, yep. Oh, 10-year anniversary. Yeah, I'll have to have more potato curries to celebrate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And when we met, I think you'd either just started or you'd maybe been going for about a year. A year, I think, by that point. Yeah, Yeah, it was really young, very early. Yeah, and I just look at where you were then and where you are now. And when back then, you just took photos Mm. And now you're this amazing visual storyteller that really wants to get the stories out of all of the people and all of the organisations that you shoot for. Mm-hmm. Like even if it's just a building, you can still manage to pull a story out of it. Quite often it might be the pigeon in the corner of the building. <laughs> Damn you, pigeon! <laughs> or when you shot the wrong building. Yes. That's, that's the same story. The pigeon was on the right building when I shot it and I shot the wrong building first. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> look, I honestly look back at some of the work that I submitted to clients in the really early days And I don't know how I got paid for some of that work. Honestly, like it was just really, it wasn't bad, but it was very amateurish and I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't profess or proclaim to be an expert photographer at that point, but I definitely was charging people for that work. And I've had some clients like Brisbane Airport who've stuck with me since, I think they have been my clients since 2011 and their appetite for visual content has grown and storytelling has grown and my ability to deliver that has also grown. So I've got some amazing relationships with companies like that and Airbus and all those kind of people where you can, you know, where my skills and their desire for content in to be delivered in different ways have, have grown alongside each other. So I think the first time you shot me was about probably – eight years ago, seven years ago, was just after my dad died, which is eight years ago. Can you believe that? I can't believe that. I can't believe that, no. And we wanted to get a family shot of my brother, his wife, their two kids, 
Sean, my husband, and my stepson, and you just took the photos and I looked at them on the little tiny screen on your camera and it wasn't until you sent them to me that I realised my bloody brat of a stepchild had his eyes shut or was pulling a face in every single one. So we couldn't use them. (laughs) And I really wanted to cut him out, but I thought, no, that's probably not a good look. No. <laughs> <laughs> and the last time you shot me was just a few weeks ago. Yeah. And it was tethered to an iPad and we just went through everything on the spot and it was so easy to see what mm. worked and what didn't work mm. and just, mm. you know, just from that technique perspective. Mm. But also just the way that you made me feel comfortable and at ease and not that I've ever had any problem in getting in front of a camera, but that didn't matter to you. You just treated me as though I did and you made it easy. Well, thank you. I really do go out of my way to make sure that I'm distracting people with conversation or with just other things that are happening rather than focusing on the photo shoot. Because I think that when someone is distracted by a stupid joke or something else that's going on, if I can distract them with that, then they can just get out of their own head a bit. One of the things I always say to young photographers in the beginning is that you're so focused on the equipment because you don't really know what you're doing that you don't realise that there's a human being in front of you who's got serious self-esteem issues most likely because most people, I would say 99% of people don't like having their photo taken. So when you get to the point where where you're experienced enough to just let the gear do its thing and you just take concentrate on the actual person in front of you, it is much easier to be connected to that person and to draw their story out. All the photos that you've taken of me over the years, the one I love the most. <laughs> I know exactly the one you're about to make. It's one we took the other day or a few weeks ago when you just said, just ham it up a bit. <laughs> and I've been using that photo in presentations. Great. I'm so glad to hear you've been using it. Because I absolutely love it. I haven't quite gotten to the point of putting it on all of my corporate paraphernalia. Yep. but I'll put it, it should on be the... a little square just in the corner. No, no, no. I'll put it on the image, the cover of this one. Great. So excellent. everybody can see, see it. it. Excellent. Great. I love that photo. It's And I love that photo because I know you pretty well and I know that that's you. And I think when I'm looking, as you said, when I go through and photograph people, I do shoot tethered to an iPad so that people can see their image and they have control over what their image looks like. But also it gives me the opportunity to really see if I've got the natural smile, because people will look at an image and they go, I don't like my eyes or my hair or my whatever and that, but all I'm looking for is a natural smile. Because when you talk about connection, People look at an image and know if someone is really, truly smiling. And that's all I'm looking for. And you can really tell that. You're so right. Humans are just attuned to that. And so when people look at an image and say, oh, my hair is doing a weird thing, I'm like, nobody gives a crap about your hair. I promise. Nobody would even notice. No. The only person who notices the bad stuff usually is is you. you. And it's given me a really interesting appreciation for how much stuff I dislike about my own body and how much stuff other people probably don't even notice it because people will look at the iPad and go, oh, I don't like this particular thing. I'm like, I didn't even notice it. Yeah. And I shoot people every day and I'm deliberately looking for things that look weird and I just still don't notice it. Yeah, I love that. And that's, I think, one of the ways that you really connect with people and make people feel at ease behind or in front of the camera. Do you have any advice for people who really hate having their photos taken, especially if they can't use you? There is a lot to be said for finding a photographer who makes you feel comfortable. That is a really important part of it. I have people say to me all the time, oh, I always blink in photos. And I'm like, well, if you're always blinking, you've got a bad photographer. You know, really, it does come down to that. So I think if you're able to have control over the photographer, that's one part of it. But if you don't, like if you're working for, you know, Ernst & Young and you've got a corporate photographer coming in and you've just got to have your photo taken – I would suggest a couple of things. The first one is to wear something that you feel very comfortable in and that could mean whether it makes you feel powerful or whether it makes you feel feminine or masculine or whatever it is. Like however you want to be portrayed, dress in a way that makes you feel that way. 
I think a lot can be said for sort of faking it until you make it. And I think the other thing is that you need to keep breathing. People, I can't tell you the amount of times that I people get in front of my camera and I go, keep breathing, and they go, oh, yeah, I'd stopped breathing. <laughs> I'd forgotten to breathe because they're so focused on what, what they're doing that they actually clam up and forget to breathe. And the other stuff is like, you know, again, if you have control over the shoot itself, like a little bit of control, are you more comfortable sitting or standing? Are you more comfortable leaning against something or standing free? Are you more comfortable with your hand in a pocket or with your weight on one foot? You know, like if you have some control over your body, practice some poses in the mirror before you go because you'll know what feels comfortable and 100% of the time what feels comfortable looks comfortable. So if you feel comfortable, that will come across in your image. I like that. What's some of the advice that you give to clients when they're wanting to tell a story, either through a video or through an image? Who are you talking to? If you don't know who you're talking to, it doesn't matter what your story is. You have no idea where it's going to land. So the first thing to identify is who you're actually talking to, and that could be internal or external. So if you can really clearly define your audience, then you actually understand the story that's relevant for them. I think quite often people get are maybe a bit guilty of saying, this is the story that I want to tell which is great, but it's not customer-focused. That's you-focused, not your customer-focused. So I always encourage people to say, right, who are we talking to? What is important for them to know? And how can we communicate that to them? And I think the story comes from that. It's basic marketing 101. It's marketing point oh one. Yeah, Know your customer. It is. Know your audience and then do what it is that they're going to need. Yeah, and work backwards from the customer every time. And you can never know too much about your audience. I I think you're right. And I I think you can get lost in the detail a bit in terms of trying to figure out what they need. But I think having some just some personal conversations with your customers is the best way to figure out what they want. A friend of mine was telling me how one of her clients created avatars about who their core customers were. So what they did was they created a persona and it was they named their customers and they had three or four target customers. So they named three or four people. They described them in really significant detail. So who they were, where they lived, how old they were, what their names were, how many kids they had, what they did for a job, what they wanted from this particular organization, how they spent their spare time. And then they took it to the next level and they created life-size cardboard cutouts for each of these four ideal clients And they put copies of them in their main sales offices and took them to their sales conference that they had every year. So they could clearly say to their staff, these are our four main target customers. You know their names, you know what they think, you know what they want. And so every decision we make as a company needs to be framed as, is it something that Bob, Jen, Bill and Jane would want? And if not, why would we do it? That's such a smart way of really focusing your efforts and your energies on what you're trying to achieve. I think it's a really intelligent way of getting everyone on the same page, basically. Exactly. And not only is it smart, but it increased their profits quite significantly. Not surprisingly. I think that market segmentation thing is quite common, particularly among big businesses, but attaching an identity to it is not very common, I think. So that's impressive to take it a step further. Yeah. And the life-size cutouts so that they could really be a part of their team. Mm was just, that was just next level. That's amazing. The results demonstrated that it was the right thing to do. Mm. So clever. Now, I just want to segue slightly. Sure. (laughs) On your website. Yes. Oh, God, what's on my website? This is the question you weren't given. On your website, you call yourself a social commando. A social commando. (laughs) What does that mean? Um, Because I'm assuming you wear underwear. (laughs) I do always wear underwear, everyone. I'm wearing underwear right now. In fact, I'm such a cold person that I'm often wearing like underwear and then tights and then (laughs) pants underneath my jeans. Like I'm so cold. 
a social commando. The way that I define that is to say that you can put me down in any situation and I can cope, like any social situation, I can find my way around. My sister tells a great story. We went traveling together in Italy in 2006 and I would not talk to anyone. I was not, I couldn't talk to anyone. I was so shy. Everywhere we went, she would talk to everyone. But because I was this mysterious enigma that would never talk, everyone would always carry my bags and never carry her bags. <laughs> so one day she cracked it so badly and said, "I we're going on this bus tour today and I am not talking to anyone. You are responsible for having a conversation with someone on this bloody bus. I'm going to sit there and not say anything. I sat there for 20 minutes and after 20 minutes she was like, I can't help myself. And she started chatting <laughs> to the person next to her and I was like, win. <laughs> but it's I've come a long way since then because you just have to. To do my job well, I've had to learn how to connect with people in a really meaningful way very quickly. So for example, portraits are a really easy example to use. But if I'm on an industrial site, I'm a woman, I'm a relatively short woman, I'm a redhead. There are not many women on the sites that I go to. There are more and more now, but in the beginning, particularly there weren't. So I was a woman on site doing a non-industrial job as a photographer. I have no legitimacy on that site whatsoever. So I have to pretty quickly prove myself that I'm capable that I belong on that site. So the way to do that, you know, on an industrial site is obviously different to the way you would do that in an office, but I had to learn really quickly how to put people at ease and how to find a target that I could connect with really quickly that everyone else would that I could get everyone else on side with or, you know, so you just have to cope, you have to survive in any situation because you rock up to a job and you have literally no idea what you're going to be faced with. Yeah, I think that would be one of the hardest things for me about your job because I'm very introverted and inherently shy, mm. even though nobody ever believes that. No, no. I like to talk, but I've had to push myself out of that natural space as well. And it was hard, but now, I mean, I'm glad I did. I'm assuming you're glad you did. Oh, definitely. I always say to people, if I had have known how hard it was going to be to start a business, I would never have done it. So I'm glad I didn't know because I can't imagine doing anything else. I would not be anywhere near as happy as I am today if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now. And if I had have known, I would have stopped myself through fear. So I'm just glad I was too stupid to understand what it was going to be. <laughs> I just forged in with dumb luck. I think a lot of business owners say that. I know I certainly do. Yeah. What is it you love about working for yourself? I really do love the flexibility of it, but I also love being completely and 100% responsible for everything that happens in my business. So if something goes wrong, I don't have anyone else to blame, but if something goes right, it's my celebration. And I think that as I get more and more experienced, now that I've been in business for over a decade, I've got some really amazing relationships with clients that I've been able to develop. You can see the benefit of working with people for 10 years or more. You just get so much more out of that relationship. And I've, I've gotten some really valuable relationships out of the, you know, out of my business. Yeah, I love that. Mm. How do you celebrate? I've only just started doing that, I think, because I think I've only just breathed out. You've been in business for a decade and I go, oh, crap, I made it to a decade and I've done all these amazing things and worked with the military and you know, worked in industrial sites and worked for big companies. And I go, oh, wow, I've actually done a lot. <laughs> I bought a house at the end of last year and that was the first really big financial kind of goal that I had met through my business in terms of personal. So I really acknowledged what I had achieved when I bought that house. It was such a big milestone for me. Yeah. If you hadn't chosen photography as a profession, you probably would have bought that house many years earlier, given the uh, amount of money you've spent on given, equipment. <laughs> given the house size deposit of equipment that's sitting in my office right now. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I definitely wouldn't have been, the victory would not have been a suite for yeah. sure. Mm. Yeah. I remember that feeling of buying my first house and yeah. it was just, I still remember how excited and overjoyed and terrified I was all at the same time mm. and thinking this is mine. 
No one can evict me. No one can take it. Exactly. (laughs) And I, you know, like I also too think this is a house that I bought based on work that I found. Like in the beginning, I built my business by cold calling. In 2009, I made like 500 cold calls. Wow. And 10 of those clients are my biggest clients today. That I just rocked up and said, I'm new to Brisbane. Can I come and show you my folio? And which was basically nothing. So I sort of started just before the social media revolution hit, I think, in that way. I'm so pleased that I've been able to stick with it and, and make it work. I didn't realize you'd made that many. I knew you'd done some, but 500 in a year. How did you create that connection with the person on the other end of the phone so that you could generate as much work out of that as you have? Um, I've got to be honest with you, it's brutal and soul-destroying. It, it, it's really, really difficult, and I I definitely cried myself to sleep more nights than I care to admit. But I just – I had a schedule, and I just stuck to the schedule and rewarded myself once I'd completed the schedule every day. So <laughs> this is so wow. weird, but, like, I used to get up and start work at 9 o'clock and have to make a certain number of phone calls in the first hour, and then I'd have a break, and then the second hour and a break. And you'd get to, like – I allowed myself to finish work at four o'clock when Bewitched was on TV or something. I was like, Bewitched was like my tune out. You've made it through another day, you know, such a stupid thing. But it was like, I just got to get to the end of the day. But creating the connection was just, I was new to Brisbane. So I had a bit of a story there. Like I could create a connection in that way by just saying, look, I'm new to Brisbane I don't have any clients, but I'm, I sort of almost made it sound like I had already been a photographer in Sydney, which I hadn't been. Just made it seem like I was just looking for new clients because I was new to the place, not new to the job. And people were just willing to meet with me, I think, because I was 30 when I started. So I didn't sound like I was 15. I think my age gave me a bit of credibility where others may not have had that. So I think people assumed I had been in business for a lot longer than I, than I had been. I find the age thing is really interesting. I've won quite a few new clients over the last couple of years because I'm not 20. Mm. And that's what a couple of them have said to me. They've Mm. said, we've hired you to do work around social media, communication, connection, and we've hired you because it's obvious you've got experience, maturity, and you're not in your 20s. And I've just thought, excellent. (laughs) But I think for your job specifically, that's really important because I think that a lot of photographers who are new – hang the shingle up and say, I've got my social media pages and I'm just expecting work to come in now. And it just doesn't really work that way. You know, it does for some people in small doses, but it doesn't for everyone. And I think that, you know, for your job particularly, you've got to have the skills on how to post and when to post and what to do, but that's all logistics. If you don't have the experience and the understanding of what creates connection in the first place, what makes people click on those posts or interact with that social media, it doesn't go anywhere. Exactly. Mm. And I know one of the things for me, like I've been really active on LinkedIn for the last probably 18 months, maybe two years, and I've been putting in a really big effort to build more relationships, post more, comment, share more. And the last probably three months, I've had three people call me and I've said, how did you hear of me? And they said, oh, we've been following you on LinkedIn. Wow. Or somebody recommended you who's been following you on LinkedIn. Wow. Yeah. And I've just, I just thought, okay, that's making it worthwhile. It's really powerful. That energy that it's taking to do that. But it's authentic on your part. We're connected on LinkedIn and I see the things that you post and share because I know you. I know that they're things that you either believe in personally or professionally. So they, you know, to forgive the wanky marketing term, it's on brand for you. It's not crap that you're sharing about increasing sales and blah, blah, blah. You know, it it is genuinely people or things that you're interested in or that you believe in. So I think it does pay off. Yeah, I've always been very real and very, some people would say too real. I wrote a blog about menopause and I share my personal experience and 
of one business because of that as well. I've when, got friends who still talk to me about that post of yours. Yeah. 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 Years later, they still talk to me about that. Yep. And yep. I've had women ring me and say, I want to talk to you about whatever piece of work we want you to do, but I noticed that you write a blog about menopause. Can I ask you a question yeah. about menopause? Yeah. <laughs> it's those secret things, isn't yeah. it? Like I never told anyone for a really long time that I was diagnosed with MS until about sort of three years ago and I put a post up on Instagram and people talk to me about it all the time now. You didn't tell me and I yeah. you just dropped it into a conversation one <laughs> yeah, night when you were here for dinner with another <laughs> friend and she's like, what? And I'm like, what? what? That's that's and, just me to a T though. <laughs> and you, your immediate reaction was, haven't I told you? Yeah. Like, how did you not know? Yeah. Like, well, how would I know? How would you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty typical of me, though. Yeah. And I think it is, again, that thing of like, you know, you can be a bright and bubbly photographer and walk in and be sparkly and shiny, which is great. But if there's no depth behind that, that's not going to last you very long and you're not going to get very far. And if you don't have that ability to show that you can just hold someone in their vulnerability for a minute while they're just processing something to turn themselves on for an image or for a, for an interview or whatever, or if they don't feel comfortable to express a fear that they have, you'll go absolutely nowhere doing the type of thing I want to do. One of my mentors, Matt Church, calls that getting into the right state. Yeah, and right. you need to get yourself into the right state, whether it's mental or physical, before you do things that cause stress. And so one of the things for me is when I'm speaking or running a workshop, I need to make sure I get myself into the right state the morning of. Or what do you do? What, what, what does that look like for you? I turn my phone into flight mode a couple of hours before usually or up an hour before, depending on how big it is, so that I don't have external distractions. And I normally just try and sit quietly somewhere and think or I might do some work for a different client, but not have any external distractions, try not to talk to people. Yeah, I don't meditate or I don't, you know, have a ritual with music or some people have, but I just try to sit quietly and then I might do a few little star jumpy type things or energizy things to get the blood moving. To get the blood flowing mm -hmm. and maybe listen to some loud music if that hopefully the room will be playing it if I'm speaking mm -hmm. and just pump myself up mentally that way mm -hmm. before I go mm -hmm. on stage. The main thing for me is not having external distraction. The introvert in you needs... Yeah, phone in flight mode. No, not even that. It's just early in my speaking career, I got a text message from somebody that just made me incredibly angry and that impacted. It came across when I was on stage that I was really shitty. And so that was a big lesson to That's really avoid anything that mm. could potentially get you from being... Zend out. Well, calm and a little bit anxious to being super upset, unhappy, sad, annoyed, pissed mm. off. Audience doesn't need that. No, and they can tell, like it's what I was saying before, when you look at a photo you can tell, an audience can tell if you're not on your, on your oh, game. Absolutely they can. Mm. And you know what's interesting is a client can tell when I'm when I'm not on my game either. So one of the ways that I prepare is to make sure that technically I'm very well prepared. So I check all of my gear the night before and then recheck it in the morning and I go through in my head what the setup is going to look like and I visualise every single piece of equipment and how it all connects together and how many batteries I need and all that kind of stuff because when I feel technically prepared then I'm not worried about that when I'm on site. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? Mm. So I just want to ask you a few questions before we wrap up. What book or podcast or other resource has really impacted you? Hold, please. 
<laughs> She's checking her Narrator phone for Jen her notes. Jen reaches her phone <laughs> to look at her podcast list. You had this question in advance. <laughs> no, I did. And I the, look, the, the one that I, I just couldn't quite remember the name of it, there's two podcasts that I listen to which talk about it's a vulture podcast. It's called Good One, and it gets comedians to come on and describe a joke that they wrote. Like it could be a set or a bit or something, and they break it right down to its elements. And they, the interviewer Jesse David Fox talks to the comedian about what they were thinking, what state of mind they were in, and often how the joke changes over time, all that kind of stuff. And I find it endlessly fascinating because what you see on stage with a comedian versus the work that they put into it is often very different. And I just love seeing how the sausage is made in that regard. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's a really, really good one. And he's such a comedy nerd that he interviews people in such an intelligent and insightful way. So the most recent one, he interviewed the writer of Russian Doll, the series Russian Doll, and talked through all of the deaths that were on screen and what it meant for the narrative arc. So you really get a great sense of narrative storytelling through comedy, which I think storytelling, I love storytelling through comedy. I think it's a really interesting way of getting people to relax when you're able to tell a story in a funny way. So that one has really had a big impact on me. I think, you know, I know that you're a big fan of Chat 10 Looks 3, but I think there's quite a few podcasts in my feed that are like that, which are relationships between two or three women and it's not necessarily even the content that you're listening to it's the fact that these women are having a conversation and they clearly love each other they're the things that I really connect with because it feels like I'm having a conversation with my friends. I love that about that as well. Yeah. And you've just reminded me, years and years ago, my mother rang me and she said, I've just watched this show, Sex in the City. Oh. <laughs> and my mother was a very devout Catholic. And all wow. I could think was, holy crap. Hope she doesn't listen to the teabagging episode. <laughs> <laughs> what? What is she going to say? And she said, I've watched a few episodes now and I'm there cringing, thinking, oh my, oh my God. God. Don't talk to me about sex, mother. <laughs> And she said, what I love about it is that it's these four women who inherently love each other and it's about their relationship and it's about how much they are there for each other Mm. regardless of the men that come and go from their lives. Mm. It's about this love and this female bonding and friendship. And I just thought, I don't know if I've ever looked at it that way before. Mm. And it Mm. made me think about that show in a whole new light. And there's another one on TV or on Netflix or on Stan or whatever it's on at the moment that I love called The Bold Type. And it's very similar. It's created by, I think, the same guy that created Sex in the City. And it's three young women in their 20s who live in New York and who work for a magazine. And their friendship is very reminiscent of the four women in Sex in the City. But the fourth woman in their group is their boss, Jacqueline. And she's like a mother figure plus a boss plus a confidant plus this incredible woman who just goes out of her way to make sure that the young women in her team are supported and mentored. And It's so important, I think, to see that mentoring, to see women supporting other women because there's such a reputation that women cut other women down and it's never been my experience. See, I have had that experience where I've been cut down. Yeah, I remember you told me about that. And I feel like I've been really fortunate. I think it's because I'm a little bit of a – like I'm a fiery redhead, so it's pretty – hard to push me around, I think. 
But I've honestly never had that experience. I've had that experience with men a lot, but not with women. Yeah, yeah. See, I don't think I'm easier to push around. So the few times it's happened to me, I've just been so gobsmacked that I've actually not known what to say. Right. Because I've been so dumbfounded that somebody felt that it was okay to speak to me that way or treat me that way. Mm. And it's not until later when I've sort of thought about it that I've. Come I wish up I with hadn't the said this. Classic <laughs> responses. Oh, that is the worst. Honestly, you just wish you could text them going. And yep. another thing, <laughs> but good blog fodder. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my god, yes. I do drag out some of those stories. Yeah. I'm not afraid of naming names these days. Oh, good one, good one. Some of those women's names I've forgotten, but I don't forget the companies that they work for. No, you don't do. You, and you don't yeah, forget those bad experiences. Awful, awful. I think. Um, that thing of like you'll you you'll never remember what people said, but you'll always remember how they made you feel. I think yeah. that's so true, and I really I really try to live by that ethos because I was a pretty angry person when I was younger, and I think now I'm just trying to live with a little bit more grace and a bit more humility. And when you do that, you actually open yourself up to hear the stories of other people because in the beginning, you know, early on in my life, I was so busy trying to protect myself from the rest of the world that you actually miss what's happening around you. You miss the stories of the other people around you, which is a real shame. Yeah, I totally agree. And that quote was Maya Angelou. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah I right. love that quote. Yeah, I, I love her. That, yeah. I put that quote into every presentation I've ever done. It resonates so much with me and it's such a great quote about connecting. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it is. Now that we've had more conversations about connection, I see it everywhere now, like in terms of just the, the way that people are reframing it or trying to talk about it in a business sense or trying to make it work for them. I'm like, what you're talking about is connection and storytelling. Really? That's exactly. all you're telling. That's yeah, all you're talking exactly. about. But you're trying to frame it in a businessy way so that it looks legit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So any books that you recommend? Um, books. I'm not a big reader, I've got to say. Like I'd read a lot of fiction, but not a lot of books that sort of stay with me. Any good fiction recommendations? I'm always up for a few more. I'm a bit of a science fiction and fantasy nerd, actually. So, and I'm I've got a shocking memory for books that I've that I read. But one that I read recently, I discovered the Libby app from Brisbane City Council, which I adore. Oh, Borrow Box is another good one for Brisbane yeah. listeners. Yeah, there's an author that I really love called Charlie Jane Anders, and she wrote a book called All the Birds in the Sky. It's narrative and storytelling done in a way that I've never really experienced before, and I'm finding it really hard to describe. But it's if you're into a little bit of sort of it's not heavy on the magic, like there's no dragons or anything like that. But it's very interesting. It talks about the difference between being connected to nature and being connected to technology, and you know the future in that way, and that the tension between those two things, which I find really fascinating. I'll pop those in the show notes. Great, so people can find them. Excellent. I normally always say I love to connect over food, so I want to know what you're having for dinner, dinner. tonight. But that's how we started this conversation. <laughs> given you cooked my dinner tonight, and I will say you have cooked me dinner quite a number of nights. Okay, well, I'll tell you what we're having for dessert because it was dessert that I bought over last week when I was here for dinner, which is dairy-free coconut chocolate ice cream from made by Weiss, which when I found in – Coles or Woolworths, whatever it was, about three years ago, I almost cried because it had been so long since I had proper ice cream, given that I don't eat dairy. I was pretty excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm just excited and amazed they're still in the freezer. <laughs> it didn't get <laughs> eaten by your husband. <laughs> I know. So is there anything you'd like to be remembered for? I would just want people to remember me as someone that they felt safe with, that they could be vulnerable with, and that they could be themselves with. That's what I would want to be remembered for. And I don't necessarily need that to be in the world more broadly, just for the people that I, who are important in my life. Hmm. You read Brene Brown? Yes, I have actually. And I'm booked into her 
She's got a two-day workshop thing coming up in November, I think. With yeah. one of her. With one of her team. Team. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think she really has spearheaded this conversation around vulnerability and storytelling in a way that makes, you know, our job much easier because it's in the public consciousness now. And so we can kind of just hitch our wagon to that in a way because it's it really is in the public vernacular now around vulnerability and shame and what that actually means. So, yeah, I think people, when you go into a boardroom and you have a conversation with a client about being vulnerable and telling their story, they kind of – there's a little bit of knowledge there already so you just have to build on top of it. You know, you're not having to sell the concept of storytelling and vulnerability. You're just having to sell them on what their version of that looks like. Yeah, and I think thanks to Brene Brown, a lot of people have heard her name mm. so you can at least – point people in the direction of some good resources. Yeah, absolutely. If they need it. Mm, yeah. yeah. So thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been no, so thank you. lovely catching up again, even though we catch up all the time. I know, I know. How can people find you? I am on Instagram under um, Jen Dana, so it's just at Jen Dana. Oh, sorry, Jen. Can, can I give a language warning? Yeah. There is a <laughs> yes, there is a language warning there. Look, there's nothing you know nude or inappropriate in photos. Jen's uh, Instagram stories, but my but the stories <laughs> can be a bit uh, blue. Let's just say if there's a pigeon in my shot that I don't want to be in there, <laughs> I want to kill the pigeon. I want to stab the pigeon. The pigeon will die. No, so it's just sorry at at Jen Dana. That's probably the best way to connect with me, other than LinkedIn. I spend most of my time on LinkedIn these days because all of my customers are businesses. So I'm sort of B2B, I guess. So. And what's your website when people need a website? Uh, my website oh. is just industrialphotovideo.com.au. And I'll back all of those details in the show notes Thank as you. well. Thank you. Really appreciate it. We might do this again over another potato curry. Or a glass of wine so that we can really get to the truth of the matter. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a gin. That sounds good too. Oh, so good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. See Bye. ya. <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at melkettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.